Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. In this episode, I have a double feature. First off, I'm talking with the organizers of this year's California Adaptation Forum. We'll talk about what's in store at the forum and talk about adaptation in California. Also in this episode, I have conversations with the 2018 co-winners of the Tyler Prize, Dr. James McCarthy and Dr. Paul Falkowski. We discussed the research that led to this prestigious prize. Tyler Prize is the equivalent of winning the Nobel Prize in Environmental Science. It was an honor to have them on. Okay, some housekeeping. I've mentioned this before, but if you have Alexa, you can now listen to America Adapts on Alexa. In my show notes, there is a video that shows you how to do that. I just got back from Nairobi, Kenya. I was recording with some amazing adapters from all over the world. I even got to visit a juvenile elephant sanctuary at Nairobi National Park. It was very cool, and I will have more on this content later on in the year. All right, I'm off to give a keynote speech at the Victoria Adaptation Sector Summit in Melbourne, Australia. I'm leaving in a couple days. I'm looking forward to meeting some of my listeners down under. I'm also on a communication panel with Johanna Nalau. If you remember, she was the host of the two episodes of Australia Adapts we did here on America Adapts. I'll actually get to meet Johanna in person. I'll have a podcast coming up out of my time down in Australia, and I'll be interviewing folks at that conference. All right, upcoming episodes. It was a little slow here at America Adapts, but the next couple months are just packed. I have climate communicator extraordinaire Suzanne Moser coming on along with folks from the Kresge Foundation. My next episode in a couple weeks will be with Kate Bishop-Williams at the University of Waterloo, where we talk about the value of using podcasts in the classroom and her own experiences using a climate podcast in her university classroom. Hint, it was one of mine. All right, it was a great conversation, and I hope it spreads the message of why podcasts are useful tools, not only in the classroom, but hopefully people recognize in the workplace, too. I'm also part of a three-part flood theme series I'm doing with the World Wildlife Fund that will start to come out in June, and we'll have those coming out through the fall. All right, shout-out time. Thanks to Marissa Slavin for reaching out and sharing her young adult climate book with me, Code Blue. There's a link to her book on Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Marissa. Also, I'd like to connect with some other listeners. Chester, Mark, guys, thanks for reaching out. We'll be in touch. And a shout out to Steve O. Steve listened to the California DAP series and he had a question related to like when I'm talking about sea level rise, I usually talk about it in numbers of like three feet by 2100 or five feet. And he wanted to make a point that maybe we should be talking about it, that the seas are going to keep rising indefinitely that maybe those numbers aren't really a useful way to talk about it. So thank you, Steve. Uh, I will keep that in mind in future conversations. And this is very cool for you DC-based adapters. I'm doing a live recording with my previous guest, Elizabeth Rush from Brown University at Solid State Books on June 14th from 7 to 8 p.m. There's more details in the show notes if you want to come. This will be a lot of fun. Elizabeth is on a book tour for her book, Rising. I'll ask her questions. We'll be at a table together. We're going to have a lot of fun, and she's going to take questions from the audience. So come on out and meet Elizabeth. All right. Just a reminder, America DAPS is a charitable organization. I hear from you guys all the time that you've been listening for six months from to a year. Please consider donating. Allow me to keep doing what I'm doing here. We're creating awareness around adaptation, and then we're going to do it together. So please consider. I know some of you have thought about it. In the show notes, there's information on how you can give a tax-deductible donation. I am a charitable organization. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please contact me at the website, americadapts.org. All right, let's take a ride to the California Adaptation Forum and hear from the 2018 Tyler Prize co-winners. Hi, Adapters. Today, I have a special multi-person panel to discuss the Climate Adaptation Forum. With me today is Kif Scheuer, Julia Kim, and Michael McCormick. Welcome to the podcast, guys. If each of you could just say where you work and your position with, within that organization. Thanks so much. Uh, this is Kif Scheuer. I'm the Climate and Energy Program Director at the Local Government Commission. Hi, this is Julia Kim, Senior Project Manager with the Local Government Commission. Hi, this is Michael McCormick with the Governor's Office of Planning and Research, where I'm a senior planner. Great, guys. Thanks for coming on. This is my first four-person panel. I've had three-person before, but this is four-person, so we'll, we'll see how we do with this. 
I've got some questions. I want to just talk about the form. I think it, it's coming up in, in August, but I'll let you give some of those logistical informations. But each of you are here to talk about the form. And I'm just curious, what are your roles in regard to the forum? Why am I talking to you three? Kiff, start with you. Thanks so much. The Local Government Commission and the Governor's Office of Planning and Research have been collaborators and partners on the forum since its inception in 2014. And I'll let Michael, who was there at the birth of the idea, explain that history. But we've always wanted to work hand in hand, but at the local and the state level in the presentation of this content, because it's an issue that affects all levels of our society. Julia. Yeah, and I'm over at the Local Government Commission. I'm serving as the lead program manager for the California Adaptation Forum. So wrangling all of our great committee members. We have over a 100 committee members who are helping develop the program and working with, of course, our state partners and a lot of the other partners who are involved in the development of this event. Yeah, and Michael, if you could share some of that history, that'd be great. Absolutely. I've been serving as the really the liaison to the Adaptation Forum for the state of California since its uh, beginning. And when we were at the National Adaptation Forum in 2013, Kate Meese, the executive director of the Local Government Commission, and I were standing next to each other, and we realized a third of the participants in the National Adaptation Forum were from California. And there was a lot of programming that was focused on California activities and initiatives, and there was a real hunger to have that similar type of convening and environment to talk about how we move California forward. So we decided at that that day at that minute to uh, actually have a California Adaptation Forum and local government commission stood up and, and said they'd be willing to uh, take the risk that wasn't successful. And ultimately, I think we found that it's been remarkably successful and, and critical to the conversation on how we're moving forward in California on climate adaptation. Well, I certainly want to dig more into what you hope to accomplish with the forum, but I think people really want to hear up front. What are some of the key logistical information, you know, dates and locations and all that? I'm not quite sure who it is be best to answer that. Go ahead, Kev. Sure. The uh, forum will be held August 27th, 28th, and 29th in Sacramento at the Sheraton Hotel. We have a pre-forum day, uh, the 27th, that is going to have some workshops in the morning and then a really great presentation of California's fourth climate assessment, comprehensive research program that uh, Michael and his colleagues have been involved in and a number of researchers statewide. Then the next day we'll have the proper forum sessions and plenary topics and networking meetings uh, over the next two days. And they'll close with a series of what we're calling adaptation accelerator workshops. Uh, Julia, maybe you could fill in a, a few more gaps there. What I think there's going to be some tours and other activities. What is there any additional information that you could share? That's exactly right. So we're, we're right in the middle of it, trying to figure out the tours that will feature. We want to have a dynamic program and demonstrate how adaptation takes shape in a lot of different ways. So we'll be featuring tours throughout the programming, actually. Um, as Kiff noted, we'll have a series of network meetings happening throughout the conference as well. Yeah, I think he covered the main bits. It's going to take place over three full days. We're going to have some really interesting side events and trying to bring in youth and art and really focus on the equity side of adaptation. So it should be overall a really exciting event. Well, I have to ask, I was in California a couple of months ago and I was recording a California Adapt series and I actually got to visit one of the wildfire sites in Southern California. It, it was just very kind of sobering just to see that. Do you think that would potentially be a tour that people could see? I know that in the, it, I'm not quite sure how far it is. I'm not that familiar with California, Northern California, but there was that major fire in the, the Bay Area that is that potentially in the cards for people to see? That's probably a little bit far for a tour. Typically, you want to keep it within about a half an hour, and that's a good couple hours away okay, once right. you get over that way. But we are talking very seriously about having a lot of conversations about that resilient response to disaster recovery, because some of the folks in Sonoma County and certainly down in Santa Barbara and Ventura County, where they were also hit by wildfire and mudslide, are thinking very much about how do they recover better recover stronger. So we're thinking about having Supervisor James Gore from Sonoma County, who's been on the front lines of the response, or uh, other folks who've been thinking about how do you leverage things like FEMA funds to not just recover as you were, but recover better. Right. And, and just to add on to that, I from the from what we're hearing from our local partners in the field is this is a disasters, uh, as unfortunate as they may be, are real opportunities for change. So the motivation for 
moving forward on adaptation and resilience policies and avoiding maladaption in some of their recovery policies, you know, this is a great opportunity to have those conversations, to allocate funding, to identify to identify policy priorities that that can align with some of the new mandates on climate change adaptation. And Michael, just to follow up with you, regard you work for the state government. So how useful is this forum when it comes to working with practitioners in the state on adaptation? Why, why do you see the forum as useful? Well, we, we tend to, to bucket our California climate change policy into three buckets. One is reducing emissions. Another one is climate change research. And the other is preparing for the impacts of climate change. Climate change research has been happen- happening since 1988 here in California. We've been reducing greenhouse gas emissions um, and really started accelerating them in 2006 with the passage of the scoping plan um, and Assembly Bill 32. And we've got some really pretty significant targets on greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but we've also more recently really started accelerating work on understanding how we're going to be adapting to the impacts of climate change. And not only is it a mandate for our state agencies to address climate change adaptation, In 2015, a bill passed SB 379, which requires every local general plan to incorporate climate change impacts and adaptation into their safety elements. So there's a really strong motivation, uh, not just from a common sense standpoint, but also from a regulatory regulatory standpoint to move forward on adaptation policy and implementation. And so this, this convening of the California Adaptation Forum really helps to bring people together, the practitioners, the policymakers, the politicians that can really accelerate this change and get policy institutionalized. So, Kiff, I see there's a Regional Adaptation Leadership Award. What's that all about? Well, this is the second time we've done this with the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. At the National Adaptation Forum, they highlight showcase projects, and we wanted to showcase people who are leading the adaptation movement. And so uh, the nominations are open now through May 25th. And we're going to be recognizing individuals who've distinguished themselves in the climate change adaptation field through exceptional leadership. Uh, we're excited about it. It's a great partnership with ASAP. And it gives us a chance to really lift up some of the leaders and, and uh, outstanding individuals we have in California. ASAP's also running this with other regional forums, so there's, I think, about four or five uh, regional adaptation leadership awards going on this year. Awards are great. It creates a lot of positive energy, and I think the, we need, any chance we can shine on the Adaptation Universe uh, through an award, that's great, so that's good to hear. And uh, if folks are interested, on the, uh, if some of your listeners know of a leader they want to nominate, they can go to our website, californiaadaptation.org. And the spotlight uh, currently highlights a link to submit a nomination. And I will include in my show notes links to any relevant things that you want me to. It's easy enough, easier for people as they're listening to kind of click through those show notes and go to that. So just uh, I'll share those too. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So, Julia, it, who are some of the partners that you've been able to recruit for the conference? I, I always find that interesting is to going to the partners page, who's willing to kind of step up and actually provide some funding and support in that way. Who, who are some of the partners? I think Kiff can certainly speak to the sponsors. We've had a number of really fantastic uh, sponsors who are supporting the event. And of course, it wouldn't be possible without their support. We also partner with a number of different uh, organizations and individuals that range from public sector, as, as it's been noted, from local to state, private sector leaders, community leaders, a lot of environmental justice organizations, tribal nations, um, nonprofits who are working in this space. And we're working on a new program development process where we're curating the content a bit more and really tapping into the strong adaptation network that we, we we're fortunate to have in California. Um, Kiff, if you wanted to add a bit more in terms of the partners that we that we're working with. So I'll, I'll continue a little bit. Yeah, thank you, Julia. As you mentioned, we couldn't do an event like this without our sponsors, and we definitely think of our sponsors as strong partners. And I think if you look at the website, at the list of all the um, uh, sponsoring partners, you'll see they reflect a lot of the public and private sector interests in this area. At the top of the list, the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, traditionally uh, an air quality organization heavily focused on mitigation and, and VMT issues, but are increasingly seeing the risks presented by Climate change and a number of the other air districts have signed on as partners. WSP is a large infrastructure engineering firm, has stepped up at a significant level um, because in part they're involved with things like high-speed rail 
and other large infrastructure projects, which increasingly, and in part thanks to the state's leadership on, on policy setting, are having to address climate risks in their long-range engineering and their building and construction projects. And then as you go down the list, you'll see a lot of uh, folks like the some uh, IOUs, the investor-owned utilities, and the um, publicly-owned utilities, water and power organizations, nonprofits. We've been fortunate to get a couple of sponsors who are actually sponsoring um, scholarships because, as I hope we'll get a chance to talk about, a really important aspect of the program is both uh, representing the risks to frontline communities and lifting up voices from frontline communities. And we can't do that without getting travel scholarship and support so that folks from underserved and underrepresented communities can participate. So real shout out to Resource Legacy Fund for, for putting up some scholarship funds and others as well. Um, but those partners really are starting to recognize the importance of this this convening. And I did want to say a little bit more about what Michael had brought up as far as the importance to the state. We, the local government commission, see the importance to local leaders to be able to engage with the state. One of the things that's really critical at an event like this across and across the whole adaptation movement is really better, tighter coupling of the feedback loops between local activity and state policymaking and state activity and local policymaking. We need to have very integrated approaches, holistic approaches. You'll hear those words a lot, but you can't have that happen in a vacuum. So having a forum to come together and hear and listen, what are some of the levers, some of the risks and some of the opportunities means that we act more collectively in the same direction. I've been to two of the National Adaptation Forums, and, and I know Laura Hansen relatively well, and I think she's made great progress in diversifying the people that show up. And it sounds like you're getting some corporate sponsors, but what are you doing to recruit actual corporate participants to the conference itself? Do you feel like you're going to have good numbers there? Because you know how a lot of these conferences are. It's nonprofits and it's government people that show up to them. And sometimes it's a bit harder to get the private sector to, to show up to, to these conferences. I'll, I'll take the first cut at that for sure. I, it is hard and it isn't um, where we'd like it to be, to be totally honest. And we've tried to integrate private sector issues, private sector speakers in a plenary way in each of the previous two forums. Uh, we've done outreach through organizations like the Business Council on Climate Change, and it just isn't quite clicking uh, in the ways that I think it needs to in order for us to have all those parties at the table. And I'm not sure what the what the answer is there. There's a number of other events for private sector uh, folks like the Climate Leadership Forum, where you see a strong uh, corporate presence. And I'd love to see more integration across those spaces. Yeah, and just to add on to that, the I, I think the discussion around private sector engagement on adaptation is critical. I I think that what we've found in talking with our, our private sector partners is that these types of forums and venues where uh, there's a lot of collaboration happening between the public sector and consulting and local government and uh, and the NGO community, that oftentimes that's not the safe space for the business community. So I think we need to look towards creating venues where uh, we are really focused on how the business community actually talks about adaptation. They have a, a different language they use than the public sector. Um, but I also think the funding and financing discussions that are really starting to mature here in California and the regulatory requirements that are now in place for state agencies, infrastructure, local government decision-making, that all of these things are really going to bring the private sector into this discussion actively, uh, not just as, you know, again, as something that's the right or good thing to do, but it's also a business opportunity and an opportunity to uh, engage in, in the future of communities and the planning around land use and sustainability. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned it's a business opportunity. I interviewed Peter Kariva. He's the director of the Institute of Environment down at UCLA as, as part of that California DAP series. And he, he made, I thought, a really interesting point that folks haven't quite figured out how to make money off adaptation. And as you just described, it, it's starting to happen. But on the mitigation side, when you think about renewable energy, there's actually a lot of money involved. And so adaptation still kind of struggling with, you know, if it's not profitable, sometimes it's hard to recruit certain sectors. So I, I thought it was related to what you said. P Peter Kariva had, had some insight on that. No, and, and, and that's a very good point. Um, the realization that you can make money is important, but also the realization that the avoided costs of proactively addressing climate risk is significant. And 
can't be overstated. Uh, the amount of money that we will be incurring in our communities if we don't move forward actively is uh, pretty hard to fathom. And yeah, I, I would say that's absolutely true. And I think that the more we move towards a regulatory or policy certainty, that's going to help those private sector firms to start to see that avoided cost opportunity. So for example, investing in um, levees or storm surge protection or wildfire reduction, if you actually have a basis on which to do that, you're much more likely to start to redirect those funds. So you've got folks like the Refocus Partners uh, who've been promoting the idea of catastrophe bonds to be repackaged as resilience bonds to monetize the benefit of infrastructure investments. Uh, you had the, the recent uh, legislation uh, last session that allows for investment in watersheds as water infrastructure, which really allows for some differential shifting of funding. And those create opportunities. Uh, we'll see people spending money where they have the certainty that they can value it. Julia, did you want to add anything? Yeah, thanks, Doug. I think we're all generally well aware of the risks that are ahead of us. Um, we know that taking action earlier is more cost effective than taking action down the line. And we're really trying to highlight the sense of embracing change to catalyze innovation as one of our priority themes. So how do we leverage unique community assets? How do we establish non-traditional partnerships and pursue solutions that capitalize on emerging industries? So it'll be really interesting to see how our program shapes up and um, as I mentioned, we're taking a curated approach and we do have a number of private of our private sector partners who are leading some of the uh, session development. So there are a lot of consulting firms throughout California, uh, 427, ICF, Cadmus, who are doing really great work. I mean, WSP, the list goes on and on. But then I think the challenging aspect for the adaptation community is how do we engage the private sector um, folks who are not as engaged but should be? So folks in the real estate and development industry, I think, as Michael noted, we're seeing the finance industry and sector kind of come on board and engage in adaptation and climate risks um, more and more. So that is definitely something that we're trying to prioritize at the forum. All right, great. And Kif, just back to the the conference itself. Let's say someone from out of state in California, what kind of pitch would you make for them to attend the conference? Is it for folks outside of California? It sure is. The the phrase that often gets thrown around for California about a lot of things, but particularly climate change, is so goes California, so goes the world. And so what we're going to be talking about is really setting the stage for the best practice in climate adaptation uh, at a statewide level, but could be very readily applied to other regions and will need to be applied to those regions. That being said, I don't want to be totally arrogant about it. Um, there's a lot that folks could share. Now, we're probably not going to be taking speaker proposals from folks outside California because we're going to want to feature California content, but having some of those practitioners participating in the discussion as audience members joining in some of the thinking and the planning and the strategy is absolutely essential because, frankly, there's folks in Florida who are far out front when it comes to some of that flood risk that we're facing. Um, there's folks in Louisiana who are seeing displacement and migration at levels that we aren't yet facing. And so there's a lot we can learn. And I welcome anyone from anywhere to come and share and talk. OK, what about some of the speakers, the, the keynote speakers or major speakers? Do you have those secured yet? Any names you can share? We don't have any names to share yet. We're okay. still working on some outreach. That can be one of those things. I can tell you what we're going to be talking about topically. The first plenary session is really going to be talking about how we as a society, as a state, get ready to face the risks ahead of us. It's going to be more of the presentation of uh, frontline considerations and the risks that frontline communities are facing around things like climate gentrification, cultural and social resilience, mental health or the intersection of racial equity and climate resilience. These are really burning challenges that we wanted to kick off the conference with because we think it's important that we start to uh, make these high-priority topics, not sort of a secondary tertiary consideration. The second plenary is going to be focused on governance, frameworks for action. How do we build that society that can handle these tough decisions ahead? Because frankly, the way we govern in a time of a changing climate may be different than we've governed before. And then when we close, we're going to turn towards sort of a forward-looking, action-oriented, and hopefully uplifting story 
that uh, highlights some success strategies, some opportunities, some maybe private sector voices talking about different ways that they're investing, but also with a pretty clear-eyed appraisal that it can't be Pollyannish. We've got to have an integration of those other issues that we talked about earlier in order to really create solutions that are effective for everyone. Awesome. So let's just, I guess, want to wrap this up. Any sort of final thoughts from any of you, uh, Julia, Michael? Well, so the, uh, the California Adaptation Forum is a really critical part of how we're moving forward in California on adaptation. And not only this year, but in years to come, uh, we'll be able to continue the conversation at the forum to connect our local, regional, and statewide folks that are working on climate across the state. And just to add to that, and following up on a, on, the, on another conversation you were having, the program is trying to reflect the diversity of California. So we'll be covering issues that urban communities are facing, as well as rural communities, looking at extreme heat and wildfire, sea level rise, flooding, a lot of different climate impacts, as well as equity as a key focus in tribal considerations, which is relevant for everyone. So I think there's something that would be that's going to be interesting for um, each of our participants. And I think with the forum, it's a good opportunity to bring people together because this is such a tough issue. Um, the space is quickly evolving and we want to bring the community community together to help folks build connections, identify collaboration opportunities and really push ahead. So we hope that we can see you all there. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners probably won't be able to attend, but will there be any products that come out after the conference that might be useful to them? Absolutely. So we'll be sharing all of the presentations. We'll be bringing on volunteers to take notes. We'll have over 40, we'll have 40 breakout sessions, over 20 workshops, uh, three plenaries, a lot of other additional opportunities. So we'll be making those all publicly accessible on our website. Great. You guys should, I don't know who would be doing it there. We should be doing a podcast out of this whole forum. People want to listen. So that's my advice. Well, maybe you can come on down and uh, uh, join us. Um, yeah, I, I, I would love to do that as a sort of a follow up to the California DAP series. Maybe, maybe I'll be in touch with you about that. Well, again, thanks for uh, for coming on, guys. I, I wish you luck. It only gets worse from here until the actual conference regarding all the logistical planning, I'm sure. Um, but, thanks for that upbeat assessment. <laughs> I've been involved with conference planning. But I, I do hope you share when program speakers and all those kind of things kind of come out leading up to the conference. I'd be happy to sort of do a little plug. But when I, I share information on the podcast, so just, just let me know. Thank you so much, Doug. Yeah, thank you, Doug. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. Hi, Adapters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Kif, Michael, and Julia. To learn more about the California Adaptation Forum, please check out the show notes from this episode. Up next, I speak to the 2018 Tyler Prize co-winners, Dr. Paul Falkowski and Dr. James McCarthy. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Falkowski. First off, congratulations on receiving the 2018 Tyler Prize. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, I asked this of Dr. McCarthy. How did you find out that you won the Tyler Prize? Was it a complete surprise? It was absolutely a complete surprise. I got a phone call. I don't remember exactly when, but it was around October. And I originally looked at the number, which I didn't recognize, and I hung up. <laughs> okay, then what? And the, uh, the head of the Tyler Prize committee called me back. She was gracious enough. <laughs> and, and before I could say anything, she said, congratulations, Paul, you just won the Tyler Prize. So I was uh, taken aback, obviously. Yeah, something to, you know, it's a nice phone call to get. Exactly. I, I want to talk a bit about your research, but then just talk a, a bit about climate change and communication. Both you and Dr. McCarthy are just your research record is just an, an amazing sort of thing. This record of what you guys ha have done. And I sort of want to kind of simply capture that for my listeners. And so I just want to read something here and see if you can kind of uh, distill this down. And so it says on, you know, your focus areas and the origins of life, how electron transfer reactions are mediated and how organisms transform the geochemistry of Earth. In the evolution of Earth, microbes became major force in transforming this planet to make it habitable for animals, including humans. OK, so that's really complicated. Do you have like an elevator speech for all that? Like, let's say you're talking to your neighbor. <laughs> that's just such a, a handful to get your, your head around. 
Sure, it's very simple. So everybody that is uh, alive on this planet is exchanging a gas or two with the environment. So every time you're taking a breath of oxygen, you're breathing out two gases. One is carbon dioxide, which we're all familiar with, and the other is water. So you've actually put hydrogen, uh, the equivalent of hydrogen atoms, onto oxygen to make water. And where did the oxygen come from? It came from water. So the oceans on this planet are liquid. They've been liquid forever since this planet was formed. They've frozen over in some times in Earth's history, but for the most part, we've had liquid water on this planet, and it's the only planet in our solar system that has liquid water on its surface. And it's the only body of, uh, in the solar system, including moons that have water from, on Jupiter and other, other planetary bodies. So what, what do I study? I studied how the phytoplankton, those microscopic single-celled organisms in the ocean split the water to make the oxygen that we breathe and to produce another cell. So they are making, they're doing the opposite of what we're doing. They are consuming light energy to make sugar and another cell of themselves. That's what they're trying to do. And we're eating that material and we're using the energy that they produced from or transformed from the solar energy to chemicals and we're using that for ourselves well so i what you you have me thinking that typically when you hear how are we going to address our energy needs most of the time it's focused on the sort of the population of today and so what you alluded to is this additional population that that that's coming uh, when you look at renewable energy are they really thinking about that i mean it sounds like you are but it's just as it's hard enough to sort of to, to lower that trajectory, but when we factor in this extra population, I mean, the IPCC, are, are they thinking that? Yeah, the IPCC is. I think the real question is, it, do you have advantages and disadvantages in the, in the underdeveloped and undeveloped countries? And the underdeveloped and undeveloped countries, there is no grid or very little of a grid system. So if you could model a system where you have point sources of solar power, wind power, geothermal power, whatever the local supply of power is that's most efficient, and put it onto that a microgrids, then we can start to really abate the carbon emissions per capita of the planet. And if the developed countries, which have a much, much more severe problem, because imagine now we've built up huge infrastructure over decades. So the willpower and the economic drivers have to be there to redo the grid power that is now supplied by carbon emission sources and the transportation system, which is primarily still driven by gasoline powered uh, or diesel powered uh, uh, engines. The way I view this is diesel powered uh, and our engines are have to be in place in some way and they can be supplied by renewable, uh, for example, algal biofuels. Gasoline-powered cars that generally are not going hundreds of miles a day. These are like clipper ships. They will go extinct in the next 20 years or so. We will have such efficient batteries, and we will have such efficient ways of, of using electrons electrons to, to, to drive the cars, to power the cars, that it would be great. But if the electrons are, are just coming to you from a, a, gas, I mean a, a, a gas-fired power plant, you didn't do anything. So you need to have the power plants that are carbon-free and displace the transportation uh, systems with power that is from carbon-neutral sources. And then you're on your way to at least getting to what the vision of one of uh, most of us in this world want that are familiar with the problems, and that is a carbon-neutral world by the end of the century. Really hard to do. Really, really hard to do. Well, even if we make these advancements in renewable energy, there's already a lot of talk about geoengineering. And I'm just curious with your experience with phytoplankton. And I, I've read those experiments where they fertilize the oceans to sure. capture the carbon. I mean, what, from your experience, is that realistic uh, at, at all? No. And this is an old argument that was made by the late John Martin, who basically, if I recall the exact words, was give me a tanker full of iron and I'll give you an ice age. Now, in principle, if we continue to dump iron into the southern ocean, that means the Antarctic Ocean, which is iron limited. If you dumped iron there, yes, you can stimulate, stimulate blooms of phytoplankton, primarily diatoms. They sink into the ocean interior. You're removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That's true. 
However, what the real problem is, is once these guys sink into the ocean interior, they will decompose. They will form gases like methane and nitrous oxide, which will come back out of the ocean within a few centuries, if not earlier. And you've put back into the atmosphere gases that are even worse in terms of absorbing uh, solar energy, greenhouse gases, than the carbon dioxide that you removed. So this is not really thought to be a, a very good solution to the problem, obviously. Basically a time bomb to go off later it's a time. on. Right, exactly. So there are other solutions in terms of geoengineering. I, I have spent a lot of time in the National Academy going over this, this these concepts when I was on that panel. So there were two major ways of doing geoengineering. One, which is uh, essentially take out the garbage, and the other is to spray uh, perfume on the garbage. So let me con uh, let's do the take out the garbage part. The take out the garbage is if we could remove carbon dioxide from stack gases before it's emitted into the atmosphere, and then even if possible, if it's remotely possible, to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is hard, it's expensive. It can be done, but it's expensive. And then figure out what to do with that material. This is huge amounts of material. We can bury these in aquifers. We can bury these offshore, not onshore. Um, then you have a mechanism of, quote, taking out the garbage. The other, which is a uh, mechanism, which is sometimes touted by colleagues in various uh, institutions, is to spray the stratosphere with a uh, material such as sulfates, which will reflect sunlight back to space and cool the planet. Now, this idea was notionally developed by uh, Edward Teller when he was at uh, Los Livermore National Laboratory, and he advised Reagan on this, actually. Uh, this is a – once you start going down that path, you have to do this every single year. You're reducing the amount of light reaching the surface of the planet. That's basically what you've done. You have to do it all the time. You cannot stop. And while you're doing that, if you continue to build up carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you're actually masking the effects of the carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. You're counteracting it. That, to me, is an extremely dangerous uh, avenue to go down. Because if something should fail and you cannot get this sulfate into the atmosphere or you overdid it or underdid it, all of a sudden, the effects of climate would be much, much more dramatic than we see at the present time. Well, I think with the aerosol approach is that, unfortunately, a lot of countries take the short-term approach or the easy approach. And if things really, which I think we all think they will, they're going to look for quick solutions. And so, yeah, I guess it's trying to inform people today to avoid these sort of quick solutions later on. Well, that's exactly right. And when we burned coal, ironically, uh, uh, the, one of the byproducts of coal is air pollution that has this effect, which is to reflect solar energy back into space. And uh, at the time when I was at Brookhaven National Lab and in, 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 in charge of the Oceanographic and Atmospheric Sciences Division there, the joke was that we had a greenhouse gas that was counteracted by what we called the White House effect. The White House effect meaning at the time we had a president who really liked the idea of potentially putting uh, aerosols into the stratosphere to, to cool down the planet. Oh, no. I think we're going to have probably a lot of uh, approaches like that. And, uh, you know, when we are our cycles of politicians and policies, uh, I don't think science is going to necessarily inform it like we want. And so it, it remains to be seen. For sure, science does not necessarily inform everything the way it should be, but uh, I think when you remove the science from the equation, you're doing a great disservice to the, the policies of the country. Here's my next question is about communicating climate change, which you, you've, you've been doing your, your entire career. And I talked about this with Dr. McCarthy. And, you know, with scientists, I, I'm sure it's very frustrating when you just talk about the science and it just doesn't resonate with a lot of people. Do you, do you feel like you change your approach or he talked when, when I talked to Dr. McCarthy, it's like, how do you talk about climate change with the public? And here's the science, and I guess I would argue that isn't necessarily <laughs> the best approach, even though we would like to talk just about the science. People are very instinctual, or they're even tribal. How do you approach talking about it with, with the general right, public? Right, so, well, you, you, I think once upon a time you probably interviewed Randy Olson? Yes, yes, Randy. He's been on several times. Okay, so, I mean, he's done a good job of trying to understand what arguments are effective and what are not. 
So it boils down to uh, all politics are local. The way I the way I view it, and I've had these conversations with many people that are skeptical about climate change. So they say, well, what do you know about climate change? And, you know, I don't need to go into the details of where I got my education and so on. What do I know and why do we know it? I think the real issue is this, that for some reason or other, people feel that they are whoever they are, my barber, my car mechanic, whoever is entitled to an opinion that is just as valid as a physicist's opinion about climate and how it works. And I think that's a little nuts. So if you think about this, if you say to somebody who doesn't believe in climate change, would you actually go to your barber for an opinion about brain surgery if you needed brain surgery? And they pause and they realize, of course, the barber is not informed about brain surgery. So why is the barber not allowed to discuss brain surgery with you and yet is still allowed to have a, quote, valid opinion about climate change that has nothing to do with facts? So the question is, where does information come from that allows these kinds of arguments to be negated? And for many years, as you know, it's been one of these confused stories. So ExxonMobil, many other companies spent a lot of time and a lot of money and a a lot of very, very smart people working with them to try to point out the uncertainty of climate change, the uncertainties of the future. There is no such thing as a model that is perfectly certain of the future. It's impossible. It is impossible. So when the IPCC first started and has continued on, they're trying to get down to a finer and finer and finer point of we are more and more and more certain of these things. And at some point, you know, I'm afraid to say, but when sea level rises to a point which is undeniable and parts of South Florida start to be underwater, Then people will say, oh, well, this used to happen. Well, yeah, but we can't go back and undo this now easily. Okay. In fact, it's going to be very difficult to undo. So the question is, where do you want to go in the future? The question is not just to adaptation, but this is a one way street in our lifetime, our children's lifetime, our children's 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 lifetime. And the reason for that is that most of the heat, 93% of the heat that would have been in the atmosphere is actually in the oceans. So even if we stop all carbon emissions immediately, today, we still will have a warming of the atmosphere in the future of at least two-tenths to three-tenths of a degree. People just don't quite get this, but when you start to explain to them that, well, yes, we have had changes in sea level, we have had changes in climate, but it's never been on the time scale in history that we can see on the time scale that we're witnessing now. And I, I, you know, I just leave it at that and they can take it or leave it too. I think it's a horrible situation when we get into an, uh, an argument with our elected officials about this who are responsible, at least to first order, of protecting the environment and being responsible for protecting, uh, protecting the citizens of the country. Yeah, I think that science gets so complicated so quickly for, for your average citizen that they use that as an excuse not to, to ponder it, the urgency of the issue. And I, I don't know what the silver bullet is there, but you know, the, you, that complexity is they, the, it might not seem complex to you, but you just go out on someone on the street and you instantly lose them when you start talking carbon cycle and all that. And it, I understand. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Okay. No, I think, yeah, I agree. It is very frustrating, but you don't have to get into the weeds. Uh, I think that people can understand greenhouse gases pretty quickly. A few more questions for you. So you have your gala dinner. The the, the Tyler Prize is, is being given out next week, and I asked Dr. McCarthy this too. Have you started your, your speech yet? Yeah. So um, I put together a series of uh, 10 or 12 slides because we're only given 10 minutes each. I mean, the speech at the dinner – I guess so, wherever you're sitting. Well, we have two speeches. So uh, there's a speech uh, earlier in the day for the public, uh, which is to try to educate the public about what we did. And so I cut that down to maybe eight, ten, ten slides. I sent them up to Jim. Jim is going to use that as a backdrop because I speak first, and then he'll tailor his slides to mesh with mine. And then that evening, of course, we have the, the we're actually given the prize and the medal and, and, and so on. And uh, basically, that speech is a is a thank you speech, and um, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. And obviously, I want to thank my family, which is most critical. 
and, and many of my colleagues, uh, and as well as, of course, many people that will be there. But it's, that's a much more humbling experience for me. I mean, this is, this is, the whole thing is pretty humbling, actually. It's, uh, it's very difficult for me to understand. I, you know, it, it is, when I'm looking at back at the number, the people, not just the number, the people that have won the Tyler Prize in the past, many of them are, of course, my heroes and, and, and are, are extremely, extremely, extremely good scientists. And uh, this is truly uh, a true honor. Well, I, I guess sort of my final question, it, it, it is a prestigious honor. And again, congratulations in looking at some of the previous winners. You know, when you win these really important awards there's almost a responsibility that comes with it and have you given much thought okay now you have the tyler prize i know you'll continue to do your research but have you had any ideas of what you might do different or who you might talk to sure so i'm going to ask a lot of advice from people uh i've written articles for the or op-eds for the new york times in the past for example that will go so far what i'd like to see is more of uh, an, an injection of science in the media that gives access to people that don't ne- necessarily know much about science. So when I was growing up as a kid, there was no Nova yet, but we did have Jacques Cousteau, we had Carl Sagan, we had other people that were on television all the time explaining interesting things. We don't really have that very much anymore. Neil deGrasse Tyson occasionally will do a show or two. Nova is on, but I don't know how well it's watched. So I really would like to convince um, one or two uh, television producers or, or some other media people that have some power to figure out how we can get a good couple of personalities that they don't have to be scientists per se, but at least people that can explain science and get them interested in educating kids. So I think we we're, our real problem here is Kids get turned off uh, to science around the time that they're teenagers. If you can engage them a little bit earlier and keep them engaged through their teenage years in things that are interesting to them, not lecturing them, but helping them learn, then I think maybe we can start to uh, reprogram the way the trajectory of the discussions of various things like climate and evolution and so on have been in this country. It's, it's, this country is almost unique in the world. If I go to Japan or China or England or France or Germany or Denmark and you have a conversation about climate, there is virtually no debate. People accept this as something that is, you know, climate change is a man-human-induced problem, cause problem, and there should be a solution. And so people feel much more responsible. People believe in evolution across the globe, except in many parts of the United States. Uh, so this this is a, a unique problem, which I think really stems from uh, uh, brainwashing of children very early on into, and being confused. So those are my thoughts about it at the end. Well, I've thought about this in a lot of ways, but, you know, go on. I'm sorry. Oh, I was, I was just going to say, I'm very encouraged that you're thinking sort of innovative ways to communicate, because I do think especially environmentalists, there's this, you know, there's the beautiful kind of documentary that the same people are watching. And so as you, you know, communicating with children, I, I think that's really important. So I'm encouraged that you're, you're thinking different w- ways to c- communicate environmental issues. That's what is needed. Right. I mean, if you had cartoons on television that snuck science, real science in, that would be fun. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, there's there was a, there was a guy at uh, Stanford in the – He's an engineer. I think he's in the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Uh, it'll come to me. But he, de- he developed a origami microscope. Have you seen this? No, I have not. If you look up online, origami microscope, you'll find this guy. So this microscope costs something like 50, per- 50 cents to produce. 50 cents. Can you imagine if somebody like Bill Gates were to buy a, you know, I don't know how many third third graders there are, but eight, eight-year-old kids. If you gave every kid in the United States a microscope in the third grade for free, and then they could assemble it together, and then they could imagine them going now down and looking at microbes swimming in their local pond, and they can look at things that they've never seen. It's fun. They could learn stuff. But it's more than that. It's just fun. And so making science fun is the, har- is the, is the, is the harder part. 
you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Life's Engines, How Microbes Made Earth Habitable. And in the very first chapter, I wrote about how incredibly difficult it was for me to take a degree in biology because it was horribly boring. <laughs> it was taught like a memory course. And chemistry was taught. It was taught well, but, I mean, it was still taught because – the chemists were presuming that you're in the course, you want to be a pre-med student, a pre-med student. We're, we're not teaching in a nice way. You know, we should be teaching science in a fun way that you learn something, you discover something, and you feel better about yourself. Well, this is totally a tangent, but I just think, you know, as the scientific method kind of uh, unfolded over hundreds of years, I, I've looked back at, at, at some of Galileo's scientific writings and they're like stories, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the scientific method like we, we have today where it sort of sucks all the life out of what's really being said. So anyway. Uh, Absolutely. I agree. It was Kant, I think, that really started us on the bad path. So. <laughs> Kant was a very, very dense philosopher. Nobody liked reading Kant. He was very pompous, very difficult to read. And, you know, it started off in the or origins of reasoning and the scientific method. He got really interested in it, uh, obviously, but it, it came back to haunt us years later. And reading reading science as a fun thing, it, that was something that didn't really happen until almost the middle of the 20th century, I would guess. We started to make science uh, really, really boring, formulaic. And that's why I write, I'm, I wrote a book and I'm writing another book because I, I just can't, I, you know, I, I would write a letter to my mother. It would be have an introduction, materials and methods, results and discussion. Because <laughs> we're programmed. Right, right. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. And again, congratulations on, on the so prize. Much. It's been an honor to talk with you. And, you know, good luck next week with the, uh, the award ceremony. Thank you very, very much. It was wonderful. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. McCarthy. First off, congratulations on receiving the 2018 Tyler Prize. Well, thank you. It uh, was it's an enormous surprise for me and, and also quite an honor. Before digging into why you actually won the Tyler Prize, which obviously this is a lifelong sort of recognition, uh, how did they actually let you know? How did you hear about it? <laughs> well, I, uh, I had a phone call, or actually I had a phone message, and the message was uh, to uh, to call someone because uh, this person had some good news, and, and I, I knew the person, but I had not seen her for many, many years, and I thought, well, that's wonderful. Um, she must be coming to town. I'm looking forward to her visit, and, and um, when I called back and learned, no, she wasn't coming to town. I, I had no idea she had anything to do with the Tyler Prize, and she was calling to uh, tell me. Uh, about the prize. So I was, I said, toward the time, it was a good thing I was sitting down because I was completely unprepared for this call. Yes, that's one of those great phone calls you can randomly receive. So truly. <laughs> always answer, always return the, <laughs> return the call when you get the message. I guess that's the lesson. Right. Return that call. Sort of like to pivot into some of the applied, I guess, or even policy work that you've done, especially in regards to adapting to these impacts of climate change because of what's happening with these cycles. Maybe you could briefly talk about what you, the sort of the work that you did with the 2001 IPCC report, and then maybe kind of your own observations on how we're doing today in regards to adaptation. So my, uh, my own research didn't, didn't actually lead into the IPCC report. It was a somewhat of a tangent that took me more to the policy realm, but an important one. And that was in the mid eighties, I was asked to head up a group of international scientists uh, that would begin to explore these areas where the combined work of scientists from different disciplines, from biology, chemistry, and physics, from the atmosphere to the ocean to the land surface, how those processes uh, work together to define our climate system today. In other words, if you went back to 1980 and were to try and look at what we understood about how climate was regulated in the planet, it would have seen largely a physical description. Uh, there would have been all the physical processes of, of uh, the seasonal heating and cooling and evaporation and, and the formation of ice and melting and, and so on. But we now know that the biology in the ocean through mechanisms like the biological pump and, and on land through the, the not only the photosynthesis and release of carbon, which influences carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but also moisture. Plants are a very, very important part of the moisture cycle, the surface of, of land, and that influences weather and climate. So this research program we launched, the International Geosphere Biosphere Program in the mid-80s, laid out a, 
a template for the big studies that would really help us better understand how climate worked. Now, the first IPCC assessment was 1990, and I was one of the authors in that report. And at that point, all we could say really confidently was, it looks like the Earth is warming in unusual ways. We couldn't say with any confidence at all that humans were a major part of it. We couldn't say with any confidence at all whether it's going to affect weather patterns. We couldn't say with any confidence at all whether sea level rise would, uh, would, which would be affected. We couldn't say with any confidence at all that there would be impacts on the distributions of organisms, loss of ice, or anything else. So fast forward 10 years later, when I was asked to chair the working group on, on impacts, we could now, in the sort of roughly 15 years of those research programs, begin to see several things. One, there were impacts on every continent. You could see a change in distribution of organisms, a change in migration patterns, a change in egg laying time. You see a change in ice melt. You could see uh, changes in temperature extremes. For the first time, you could see that some areas that are having more persistent heat waves or more persistent droughts or heavier rains. You could see for the first time that there were also uh, indications that sea level wasn't just rising. It was starting to rise more steeply. It was accelerating. So in that period of a decade, not only were these changes more evident, but the science had now also come together to show that, that, that humans were definitely a contributing factor. And we could say by 2000 that most, most of the warming that occurred in the previous half century was due to the activities of humans. So this, this burst of research activity in through the mid to late 80s, through the, the 1990s is what allowed us by 2000 to stay with the confidence we did that we're on a trajectory that definitely, definitely needs to be altered if we don't want to see a considerably different climate, which would bring about a lot of hardship um, for humans, lives, livelihoods, and a lot of damage to ecosystems later in this 21st century. So that's, that's really the period of enormous growth and understanding. And then the next IPCC assessment was 2000. Seven and one in 2013. There's another one that works now. And each of those successive ones have further refined this understanding. But the basic message was pretty much in place by 2000. And, and again, largely one that showed that there are certain parts of the, of the, of the earth and certain populations of people who will be more affected by this than others. And it's, as you perhaps know, it's the, Countries that have the least resources that are less able to adapt to some of these changes where these impacts are going to be most severe. Adapt meaning their agriculture is perhaps marginal now and they have no capacity to really expand it greatly if they begin to lose agricultural capability because of greater drought. For example, those people are going to suffer. So the, the impact story has become increasingly refined since then as we look at different areas as to how seriously they will be affected by these negative changes in climate. And certainly we know that there's a lot of concern within the people who think about civil unrest and regional strife and national security, that these are very, these have very disruptive potential for society as you see food shortages and the conditions that, um, that arise when people are forced to either leave the land or worse, when politics also intervenes and we end up with uh, some of the, the bad situations we've seen rise over the last uh, decade or so in Darfur and Syria and the like. Now I want to talk a bit about the Tyler Prize. And so you've been communicating about climate change for a long time. Do you feel your approach about talking about climate change has changed over that time? Has there been, you know, as you have seen it sort of unfold in the policy realm, have you altered how you talk about the issue? Well, certainly. I mean, when we first talked about this in the, in the 1990, let's say, it was far more speculative. By 2000, we could be far more confident. And everything since then has simply made this case stronger and stronger. So there was a time in 1990 when you could say there were a lot of scientists who didn't think we had sufficient data to make some of these generalizations. That's no longer true. You don't find any practicing scientists in this realm who would say that today. 
there are people who have a science credential who may say that, but they're, they're not people who are actively engaged or publishing research in this area. They're, they're on the fringe. So uh, it's, it's, it, whereas we had to be more tentative at one point, now there's, there's absolutely no reason to be tentative because we know this as well as we know anything uh, in, the, in the science realm, and, and, and that's a very strong statement. It also goes with that, I think, an increasing impatience then when you find resistance to this message because of political convenience or some worldview when we know that the, the future well-being of humanity and ecosystems that support humanity uh, is really dependent upon doing the right thing with, with this information. Well, I mean, do you see an opportunity now that you've won the Tyler Prize to talk more about this and different audiences in sort of different ways of communicating this issue? Because, I mean, I think we've sort of hit that plateau. People, I think a majority think climate change is happening, but they still have their doubts. And so do you now that you've won the Tyler Prize, do you, do you have any ambitions about talking about it in different ways? Um, well, sure. You didn't call me before I won the Tyler Prize. <laughs> right. So here we so yes, uh, thank you. It's it's definitely an opportunity to to say with conviction not only that are the scientists like myself who've spent their career working in this problem convinced that um, uh, we we must make some changes if we are to avoid the the worst consequences of the climate change that uh, that could unfold. And I, I think as we uh, if you look at not only public opinion polls but Say one thing that just encourages me every day is to realize that that young people today, college age people, know and understand this problem the way no one did, certainly in my generation or or ten or even twenty years after that. So there's a understanding today among young people who are going to rise positions of leadership at public sector and private sector and all walks of life who have a, a fundamental understanding of this that we can uh, be confident will will help move the needle. The other important thing is that at one time there were enormous obstacles to transitioning away from a fossil fuel economy. And, and we know that's not true anymore. Matter of fact, all of the trends that were thought to be likely to just be too slow to make a difference, um, one after another, they, they, they fold. So look, look at the, you know, the, the recent information on wind energy in the middle of the United States. So you've got four states now. Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and South Dakota, that all get more than 30% of their electricity from wind energy. And you have several states, additional states are up nearing 20 now. So, you know, a decade ago, no one would have thought that possible. So we've seen the economy change so that it makes sense now to build wind energy or build uh, capacity for solar electric that, that wasn't there 10 years ago. So the, the opportunity from a business point of view now exists. And because the costs have come down, we're, we're seeing that pursued in, in, in ways that, uh, you know, you maybe would expect in a state like Massachusetts or California, but look where it is. It's in the middle of the country. And so there, I mean, you have wind that, that every farmer uh, has a potential to, turn into additional income with a, a windmill on their on their land. And, and so the, 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 these fundamental changes in the business side of it are also a reason to be optimistic that we'll ultimately get headed the right direction on this. Well, the gala dinner for the prize is coming up. Do you, do you have your speech ready? No. <laughs> you got some talking points for it? Or you just haven't given much thought yet? No, no I've thought a lot about it. it, it as Paul and I have chatted about it, we don't have a lot of time to do that. And uh, so we're going to try and be efficient. But no, I have not. I've not uh, there will be elements of what we were just discussing, but I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten it together yet. All Working right. on it. This might be sort of a tough question to think top of your head, but you've gotten the Tyler Prize, a very prestigious award, but you've dealt with all sorts of probably amazing researchers and advocates in your life, and I'm just wondering, in your head, if someone that you know could get the Tyler Prize or sort of the equivalent, is there anybody that we could sort of acknowledge here? It doesn't elevate yeah, to the level of Tyler Prize, but just like there's all these people out there, and you just there's probably not enough prizes and awards to go around. Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, I, the prior recipients of the Tyler Prize are, 
kind of on the who's who list of my heroes and mentors. And, and I'm just, uh, I never thought I would sort of be in that company. But yes, I can see and think of many, many colleagues who are uh, very deserving of this prize. And it would be wonderful if uh, there were more ways to, uh, to honor the people who are doing the hard work in this area. Thank you. I'm really indebted to the, the Tyler family and, and uh, the group who steward this. And it would be wonderful if we could multiply it. This has, again, been an honor to chat with you, and congratulations on the Tyler Prize, and I hope all my listeners can appreciate what a prestigious honor this is, and thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time, and I I hope I uh, can contribute to a better understanding of this problem for other people. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Many thanks to Kip, Julie, and Michael for coming on to talk about the California Adaptation Forum. And thanks again to Dr. Falkowski and Dr. McCarthy for joining me to talk about the Tyler Prize. Congratulations again to them for this very prestigious honor. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook group and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Adapts and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. We have some insider conversations, and it's a good chance to just share your own content and maybe even introduce yourself. Please do. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Also, every episode, I'm going to remind you, and it happens every time I hear from people randomly. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. My email is americadapts at gmail.com. If you have an idea for a guest, if you have feedback on a particular episode, let me know. Tell me your story. I love hearing from you. All right. Check out the website, americadapts.org. All this information is in the show notes, especially the links to that donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.